0: Following is a special announcement for all our fans at 1001 Heroes. This year, our first season has been a terrific success, all thanks to you. We are now receiving over 80,000 downloads a month, and we've just reached the point where advertisers are contacting us to place commercial ads within our show. You can say that's a wonderful problem to have, and it is, but my goal from the start has been to create a compelling story that people will enjoy from beginning to end without interruption. You may be hearing ads at the top of the show before the story and at the bottom after the story very soon, but I want to keep the actual story commercial-free. I absolutely love podcasting. I enjoy history, and I would like to be doing this full-time. Creating engaging stories that people enjoy takes a lot of time, and like most of you, I work for a living. Taking on advertisers will help to defray some of our costs, but not as much as you might think. In the coming weeks, we will be launching a Kickstarter campaign. Kickstarter is an online crowdfunding mechanism which works very well if you do it right and if your supporters wish to see you succeed with your goals. My immediate goals will be to upgrade some of our equipment, increase our marketing efforts to ensure growth, and to give me more time to create more and better podcasts. Many podcasts in the top tier are corporate funded with studios and full production staffs. I'm wearing all those hats, and my studio is my home. Our stretch goal with the Kickstarter project will allow me to do podcasting full-time, a career dream come true for me. The great thing about Kickstarter is that with most levels of contribution, you receive some very nifty rewards. One of our rewards will be the opportunity for you to honor a hero with your own story, which will be featured at the end of each of our podcasts. It could be a mom, a dad, a teacher, a fellow serviceman, an emergency responder, a person fighting a debilitating disease or handicap, a foster parent, or someone who has passed that you want to memorialize. You name it, we all have heroes in our lives. You will have the opportunity to do the audio yourself or send me the script and I'll tell your story. Your story will be heard around the world and often by many people as part of our evergreen episode inventory. It'll be a terrific addition to 1001 Heroes and it's a wonderful way to say thank you to someone special you know or have known. We'll be recording and releasing those in the order we receive them, and early bird orders are encouraged. That particular reward will be at the $300 level. If you have any questions, you can reach me at 1001 podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Now for our show. Welcome to another episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This one from our history series tells the true story of Grace Sherwood, the last person to be accused and convicted of witchcraft in the state of Virginia and the only accused witch to have been tested for witchcraft by forced dunking. The theory being that if she drowned, she was likely innocent. And if she somehow survived, she must have had witch powers to survive. A lose-lose situation to be sure. The story of her ideal is a sad one and a stark reminder of how far we've come as a civilized society in 300 years. We still have a long way to go, but we don't bring our neighbors to trial and accuse them of witchcraft because our best bull died, a neighbor miscarried, or our crops failed. 300 years ago, however, it was entirely possible. Today, no judge in his right mind would hear it. But the story bears telling to any student of history, so they begin to see the differences between society in the 17th, 18th century and that of today. It takes a long time for superstitions to give way to reality and for old beliefs to gradually give way to modern thinking. The world has gone through a fantastic period of enlightenment in a relatively short time, coming further in human knowledge and a better quality of life in the last hundred years than in all the previous millenniums combined. Yes, some superstitions still exist, and probably always will. That's just part of human nature. And many long-standing social mores exist because the natural world requires them for survival. There are also parts of the world that will remain in the dark for a long time to come. We should count our blessings that we live in a part of the world that has evolved to the point it has. Here in Virginia Beach... Where we broadcast this show, a statue of Grace Sherwood, showing her with herb-collecting basket in hand, befriended by a friendly raccoon, was erected just a few years ago in her honor. It was brought about by the efforts of a kindly person named Belinda Nash, a volunteer at the historic Ferry Plantation House in Virginia Beach. And that was after she had petitioned then-Governor Kane to grant Grace Sherwood a pardon on the 300th anniversary of Sherwood's trial and dunking. We locals know the story behind Witch Duck Road in Virginia Beach, the name having morphed from Witch Dunk over the years. Running north from Virginia Beach Boulevard, Witch Duck Road travels north a few miles until it ends at the Lynnhaven River. Today, it is all residential. Quiet homes and neighborhoods occupy area, which was then mostly farmland. Grace Sherwood was a midwife who at times wore men's clothes, lived in what today is the rural Pungo area of Virginia Beach, and it was she who later became known as the Witch of Pungo. She was a collector of healing herbs and no doubt offered cures to those who sought her advice. Her neighbors thought she was a witch who ruined crops, killed livestock, and conjured storms, and she went to court a dozen times, either to fight witchcraft charges or to sue her accusers for slander. She was 46 when she was accused in her final case of using her powers to cause a neighbor to miscarry. She was subjected to public embarrassment, dunk, and jail for up to seven years. Not too many years ago, the chimney of her house still stood down on Muddy Creek Road in Pungo, which is still a rural area of the large land area which is known today as Virginia Beach. The actual tourist area of the beach which features a mile-long concrete boardwalk and wide beach, is actually only a small part of the huge city county known as Virginia Beach. While making a business visit to one of the sand mining operations near Pungo a few years ago, I asked the owner if he knew anything about the remains of Grace Sherwood's home, which I knew to be nearby, and he answered that the only remaining part of the house, the chimney, had been knocked down by the city so it wouldn't represent a hazard to curiosity seekers. He also said he had picked up a brick from the old chimney as a souvenir a few years ago and ended up giving it to a visiting business contact who took it back to his home somewhere in the Midwest. A year later, a box from his business friend arrived at his front door and upon opening it, he found the brick with a note attached. The note read, I want to return this brick to you. Since bringing it home, I've had the worst luck for the past year. Please return it to where you found it. I never did hear if he returned the brick but I'm guessing he did. In one way or another, we all carry some degree of superstition. This is Grace Sherwood's story. According to the records of the Old Donation Episcopal Church, Grace Sherwood was born in 1660 to John and Susan White. John White was a carpenter and farmer of Scottish descent, and it's uncertain whether he was born in America. Susan was English by birth. Their daughter, Grace, was born in Virginia, probably in Pungo. Grace White married a respected small farm landowner, James Sherwood, in April of 1680, and they were wed in the Lynnhaven Parish Church. Alpheus Tuning, in his 2000 book, Haunted Virginia Beach, writes that the couple had three sons, John, James, and Richard. John White gave the Sherwoods 50 acres of land when they married, and on his death in 1681, left them the remainder of his 145-acre farm. The Sherwood family was poor and lived in an area inhabited by small landowners or those with no land at all. In addition to farming, Grace Sherwood grew her own herbs, which she used to heal both people and animals. She also acted as a midwife. When James died in 1701, Grace inherited his property. She did not remarry, which in those days would not have helped her socially with the other women in the area. No drawings or paintings of Sherwood exist, but contemporary accounts describe her as attractive and tall and possessing a sense of humor. Sherwood grew medicinal herbs and wore trousers instead of a dress while working on her farm. Both traits were atypical of the ladies of that era. This combination of clothing and good looks was said to attract men and upset their wives. Sherwood biographer and advocate Belinda Nash suggests that Sherwood neighbors may have been jealous of Sherwood and that the witchcraft tales may have been conjured up in an effort to remove her from, and subsequently to gain, her property. Sherwood was a party to at least a dozen lawsuits in which she either had to defend against accusations of witchcraft or in which she filed suits for slander against her accusers. The existence of witches and demonic forces was taken for granted by the American colonists. Witchcraft was considered the work of the devil. Strange behaviors supposedly identified witches to the colonists. As early as 1626, 19 years after the founding of the Jamestown Colony, a grand jury sat to consider whether Goodwife Joan Wright was a witch. She had supposedly predicted the deaths of three women and had caused illness as revenge for not hiring her as midwife. No record of the outcome is available. Nevertheless, Virginia did not experience the type of mass hysteria evidenced by the Salem, Massachusetts witch trials in 1692-1693, where 19 people were executed on allegations of sorcery, several years before the first accusations against Sherwood. Witch hunts have been around for recorded history, defined as a search for people labeled witches or evidence of witchcraft, often involving moral panic or mass hysteria. Witch hunts first appeared in large numbers in southern France and Switzerland during the 14th and 15th centuries. The peak years of witch hunts in southwest Germany were from 1561 to 1670. The first major persecution in Europe when witches were caught, tried, convicted, and burned in the imperial lordship of Weichensteig in southwestern Germany is recorded in 1563 in a pamphlet called True and Horrifying Deeds of 63 Witches. In Denmark, the burning of witches increased following the Reformation of 1536. Christian IV of Denmark in particular encouraged this practice, and hundreds of people were convicted of witchcraft and burnt. In England, the Witchcraft Act of 1542 regulated the penalties for witchcraft. In the North Berwick Witch Trials in Scotland, over 70 people were accused of witchcraft on account of bad weather when James VI of Scotland who shared the Danish king's interest in witch trials, sailed to Denmark in 1590 to meet his betrothed Anne of Denmark. The Pendle Witch Trials of 1612 are among the most famous witch trials in English history. The twelve accused lived in the areas around Pendle Hill in Lancashire and were charged with the murders of ten people by the use of witchcraft. All but two were tried at Lancaster Assizes in August of 1612, along with the Samlesbury witches and others in a series of trials that have become known as the Lancashire Witch Trials. One was tried at York Assizes in July of 1612, and another died in prison. Of the eleven who went to trial, nine women and two men, ten were found guilty and executed by hanging. One was found not guilty. The official publication of the proceedings by the clerk to the court, Thomas Potts, in his Wonderful discovery of witches in the county of Lancaster and the number of witches hanged together, nine at Lancaster and one at York, make the trials unusual for England at that time. In England, witch hunting would reach its apex in 1644 to 1647 due to the work of the Witchfinder General Matthew Hopkins. Although operating without an official Parliament Commission, Hopkins and his accomplices charged hefty fees to towns during the English Civil War. Hopkins' witch-hunting spree was brief but impressive. 300 convictions and deaths are attributed to his work. Not being satisfied with the money he earned shaking down small towns to keep them witch-free, Hopkins took the next step and wrote a book on his methods, describing his fortuitous beginnings as a witch-hunter, the methods used to extract confessions, and the creative tests he employed to test the accused, removing clothing to find the witch's mark. The Swimming Test and pricking the skin. The swimming test, which included throwing a witch into water strapped to a chair to see if she floated, was discontinued in 1645 due to a legal challenge. It appears as though Grace Sherwood can pin the wickedly inventive idea of the drowning test on Matthew Hopkins. The 1647 book, The Discovery of Witches, was soon influential in legal text. Hopkins' manual was used in the American colonies as early as May 1647 when Margaret Jones was executed for witchcraft in Connecticut, the first of 17 people executed for witchcraft in the colonies from 1647 to 1663. In 1645, 46 years before the notorious Salem Witch Trials, Springfield, Massachusetts experienced America's first accusations of witchcraft, as husband and wife Hugh and Mary Parsons, both distraught over the death of their child, accused each other of witchcraft. At America's first witch trial, Hugh was found innocent while Mary was acquitted of witchcraft but sentenced to be hanged for the death of her child. She died in prison. About 80 people throughout England's Massachusetts Bay Colony were accused of practicing witchcraft. Thirteen women and two men were executed in a witch hunt that lasted throughout New England, From 1645 to 1663, the Salem Witch Trials, a wild melee of accusations, high courtroom drama from the accusers, and hangings, followed in 1692-93. More on those in a minute or two. In those days, witches were those people who often thought of themselves as healers. Their magic might have been a combination of herbs or other remedies. Magic was not considered to be wrong because it failed, but because it worked effectively but for the wrong reasons or motives. Witchcraft was a normal part of everyday life. Witches were often called for, along with religious ministers, to help the ill or to deliver a baby. They held positions of spiritual power in their communities, like shamans. When something went wrong, no one questioned the ministers or the power of witchcraft. Instead, they questioned whether the witch intended to inflict harm or not. Current scholarly estimates of the number of people executed for witchcraft in the last 400 years, number as high as 100,000. In England, Scotland, and Ireland, between 1542 and 1735, a series of witchcraft acts enshrined into law the punishment, often with death, sometimes with incarceration, of individuals practicing or claiming to practice witchcraft and magic. The last executions for witchcraft in England had taken place in 1682 when Temperance Lloyd, Mary Trembles, and Susanna Edwards were executed at Exeter. In 1711, Joseph Addison published an article in the highly respected Spectator Journal criticizing the irrationality and social injustice in treating elderly and feeble women, dubbed Maul Whites, as witches. Jane Wenham was among the last subjects of a typical witch trial in England in 1712, but was pardoned after her conviction and set free. Kate Nevin was hunted for three weeks and eventually suffered death by what they called Faggot and Fire at Monsey in Perthshire, Scotland, in 1715. Janet Horne was executed for witchcraft in Scotland in 1727. The final act of 1735 led to prosecution for fraud, rather than witchcraft, since it was no longer believed that the individuals had actual supernatural powers or traffic with the devil. The 1735 Act continued to be used until the 1940s to prosecute individuals such as spiritualists and gypsies. History.com tells us that the infamous Salem Witch Trials began during the spring of 1692 after a group of young girls in Salem Village, Massachusetts claimed to be possessed by the devil and accused several local women of witchcraft. As a wave of hysteria spread throughout colonial Massachusetts, a special court convened in Salem to hear the cases. The first convicted witch, Bridget Bishop, was hanged that June. Eighteen others followed Bishop to Salem's Gallows Hill, while some 150 more men, women, and children were accused over the next several months. By September of 1692, the hysteria had begun to abate, and public opinion turned against the trials. Though the Massachusetts General Court later annulled guilty verdicts against accused witches and granted indemnities to their families, bitterness lingered for a long time in that community, and the painful legacy of the Salem Witch Trials would endure for centuries. Their influence in Virginia courts was much less than those of New England. Virginia's clergy participated little in witchcraft accusations and trials, unlike their New England neighbors. New England's Puritans had settled in towns, and community pressure helped contribute to witchcraft convictions. There were few such towns in Virginia where the population mostly lived on farms and plantations, scattered over a large area. Although few Virginia records survived from that era, 19 known witchcraft cases were brought there during the 17th century, all but one of which ended in acquittal. The one conviction was a 1656 case of a man convicted of witchcraft and sentenced to 10 stripes and banishment from the county. This came from an 1893 article in the William & Mary Quarterly titled Witchcraft in Virginia in 1893. Lacking the hysteria and mob mentality of its northern cousin Massachusetts, Virginia saw no executions for witchcraft in its history. Nonetheless, as late as in 1736, Virginia's justices of the peace were reminded that witchcraft was still a crime, and that first offenders could expect to be pilloried or jailed for up to a year. Grace Sherwood was first charged with witchcraft in a court case held in early 1697, in which Richard Capps, her neighbor, alleged that she had used a spell to cause the death of his bull. The court made no decision on this charge. The Sherwoods then filed a defamation suit against Capps that was discontinued when the parties came to an agreement. In 1698, Sherwood was accused by her neighbor, John Gisborne, of enchanting his pigs and cotton crop. No court action followed this accusation, and another action for defamation by the Sherwoods also failed. In the same year, Elizabeth Barnes alleged that Sherwood had assumed the form of a black cat, entered Barnes's home, jumped over her bed, drove, and whipped her, and left via the keyhole. Again, the allegation was unresolved, And again, the subsequent defamation act was lost. Go figure. Finally, the courts had had enough. Proceedings began in March of 1706. The Princess Anne County Justices sought to search Sherwood's home for waxen or baked figures that might indicate she was a witch. The second was ordered to look for demon suckling teats by examining her. In both instances, reluctance on the part of local residents made it difficult to form a jury, and both juries refused to carry out the search. On March seventh, seventeen 1706, Grace Sherwood was examined by a jury of twelve ancient and knowing women appointed to look for markings on her body that might be brands of the devil. They discovered two marks not like theirs or like those of any other woman. The foreman of this jury... Not by coincidence was the same Elizabeth Barnes who had previously accused Sherwood of witchcraft. Neither the colonial authorities in Williamsburg nor the local court in Princess Anne were willing to declare Sherwood a witch. Those in Williamsburg considered the charge overly vague and on April 16th instructed the local court to examine the case more fully. For each court appearance, Sherwood had to travel 16 miles from her farm in Pungo to where the court was sitting. On May 2nd, 1706, the county justices noted that while no particular act of maleficium had been alleged against Sherwood, there was great cause of suspicion. Consequently, the sheriff of Princess Anne County took Sherwood into custody, though Sherwood could give bond for her appearance and good behavior. Maximilian Bush, a warden of Linhaven Parish Church, was the prosecutor in Sherwood's case. On July fifth, seventeen 1706, the justices ordered a trial by dunking to take place with Sherwood's consent, but heavy rains caused a postponement until July tenth, as they feared the wet weather might harm her health. Sherwood was taken inside Lynnhaven Parish Church, placed on a stool, and ordered to ask forgiveness for her witchery. She replied, I be not a witch, I be a healer. According to the principles of trial by water, if Sherwood floated, she would be deemed guilty of witchcraft. If she did not, she would be innocent. It was not intended that Sherwood drown. The court had ordered that care be taken to preserve her life. At about 10 a.m. on July 10, 1706, Sherwood was taken down a dirt lane, now known as Witchduck Road, to a plantation near the mouth of the Lynhaven River. News had spread, and the event attracted people from all over the colony. Five women of Lynnhaven Parish Church examined Sherwood's naked body on the shoreline for any devices she might have had to free herself, and then covered her with a sack. Six of the justices that had ordered the dunking rowed in one boat 200 yards out in the river, and in another boat were the sheriff, the magistrate, and Sherwood. Just before she was pushed off the boat, Sherwood is said to have stated, Under clear skies, before this day be through, you will all get a worse ducking than I. Bound across the body, her right thumb to her left big toe and her left thumb to her right big toe, she was cast into the river and quickly floated to the surface. The sheriff then tied a 13-pound Bible around her neck. This caused her to sink, but she untied herself and returned to the surface, convincing many spectators she was a witch. As Sherwood was pulled out of the water, a downpour reportedly started, drenching the onlookers. Several women who subsequently examined her for additional proof found two moles on her private parts. These two moles were her undoing. She was jailed pending further proceedings. What happened to Sherwood after her ducking is unclear, as many court records have been lost. She served an unknown time in the jail next to Linhaven Parish Church, perhaps as long as seven years and nine months. She was ordered to be detained to be brought to a future trial, but no record of another trial exists so it is possible the charge was dismissed at some point. On September 1, 1708, she was ordered to pay Christopher Cock 600 pounds of tobacco for a reason not indicated in surviving records, but there is no mention of the payment. She appears to have been released sometime in or before 1714, since in that year she paid back taxes on her 145-acre property, which Virginia Lieutenant Governor Alexander Spotswood helped her to recover from Princess Anne County off of what is now Muddy Creek Road. She lived the remainder of her life quietly until her death in 1740, aged about 80. She's believed to have died in August or September of that year. Her will was proved on October 1 of 1740. It noted that she was a widow. She left five shillings each to her sons James and Richard and everything else to her eldest son John. According to legend, Sherwood's sons put her body near the fireplace and a wind came down the chimney. Her body disappeared amid the embers, with the only clue being a cloven hoofprint. Sherwood lies in an unmarked grave under some trees in a field close to the intersection of Pungo Ferry Road and Princess Anne Road in Virginia Beach. Stories about the devil taking her body on natural storms and loitering black cats quickly arose after her death, and local men killed every feline they could find, This widespread killing of cats may well have caused the infestation of rats and mice recorded in Princess Anne County in 1743. Grace Sherwood's case was little known until Virginia Beach historian and author Louisa Venable Kyle wrote a children's book about her in 1973 called The Witch of Pungo. It's a collection of seven local folk tales written as fiction, although based on historical events. Sherwood's story was adapted for Cry Witch, a courtroom drama at Colonial Williamsburg, the restored early capital of Virginia. A statue by California sculptor Robert Cunningham depicting Sherwood with a raccoon and a basket of rosemary was unveiled on April 21, 2007, on the site of present-day Santa Bayside Hospital, close to the sites of both the Colonial Courthouse and the Ducking Point. The raccoon represents Sherwood's love of animals and the rosemary, her knowledge of herbal healing. A Virginia Department of Historic Resources marker was erected in 2002 about 25 yards from her statue. The place of her watery test and the adjacent land are named Witchduck Bay and Witchduck Point. Other commemorations of Virginia Beach include Sherwood Lane and Witch Point Trail. A local legend of Virginia Beach states that all of the rosemary growing there came from a single plant Sherwood carried in an eggshell from England. Governor Tim Kaine officially restored Sherwood's good name on July 10, 2006, the 300th anniversary of her conviction. Annual reenactments of the ducking have taken place since 2006. No one has actually ducked in those events, which embarked from a spot across from Ferry Plantation House along Cheswick Lane, which is very close to Witchduck Bay. According to local residents, a strange moving light said to be Sherwood's restless spirit still appears each July over the spot on Wichduck Bay, where Sherwood was thrown into the water. Stay tuned for our bloopers coming up right after the wrap-up. Thank you for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. You can catch all our episodes at 1001storiespodcast.com and at facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes. All we ask is that you share with friends, which helps us grow. Until next time, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. We're very proud of our Navy here in Virginia Beach, Virginia, and our naval base, Oceana Naval Base. And we call the sound of those F-A-18s overhead the sound of freedom. So we're very glad to have them around. And sometimes they provide a very special challenge to audio production. The story of her ideal is a sad one. God. The story of her ideal is a sad one. (laughs) The story of my ordeal trying to record this with jets going overhead is a sad one. Ugh.